Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 12. We're going to start at verse 43 today. We've passed through 10 plagues up to now, uh, 10 proofs that, that God is almighty, that there is no other God like him. He alone defeated the gods of Egypt. He alone rescued and redeemed his people. He alone freed them and called them into a life of service. Uh, they've only just begun the Exodus journey. They've walked just a short way. But in the passage that we're going to read this morning, it's as though God pauses to say what's just happened is a big deal. Don't forget it. Don't lose sight of the meaning. The Passover is the definitive act of salvation. I want you to look back on it continually. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's, a, it's an annual reminder of the relationship that God uh, means that you would throw off having been saved, throw off the old patterns of your sin and slavery. And finally, there's a great significance in the text we're going to read about the firstborn son. So we'll read beginning at chapter 12, verse 43, and find out why this is so significant. Here's God's word. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no circumcised person shall eat of it. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you're going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to give to your fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give to you, give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time 
to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Here's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we're reading an ancient text. Uh, It is uh, telling an account of something which happened a long time ago. And so we recognize uh, that in that chasm, we need the help and ministry of your Holy Spirit. Not just because this is an ancient document, but because this is your very word. And so we ask for the ministry of your Spirit. We pray that you would again wield a sinful crooked stick in your hand like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The why and the who. At the end of this service, it's our intention to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and you'll hear from my mouth the the why and the who. Why are we celebrating the Lord's Supper? It's meaning and it's purpose. And then the who. Who is welcome to come and partake of this meal? Uh, Many of the questions that I receive as a pastor over the years hinge on those two matters, the the why and the who. And you can tell from the text that we read that the Lord himself even anticipated that, that the same questions would be asked about the Passover meal. We concluded last week with an answer to the why. I didn't read it this morning, but it was in verse 42. God said it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The why. The why. The reason to to celebrate the Passover lamb in remembrance is because our Lord willingly looked on the Passover lamb. When God's wrath over sin fell on the nation of Egypt, God remembered us. God watched over us. That's why we look to him in faith. And we remember his faithfulness to us by keeping this celebration every single year. And then in verse 43, there's this transition to the who. Who may eat of the Passover meal? And if it seems disconnected to you, that following that there's an explanation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verse 3 through 10, and then a consecration of the firstborn in verse 11 through 16. Let's be really clear. God's making a point Those who were united to Pharaoh died. Those who were united to me lived. And I led them into a new life of freedom and service to me. And so here's where this lands beautifully for you and me. God delivered you from the bondage to sin, and he did it through Christ on the cross But just as with them, your new life of freedom is is motivated and, and fueled by your spiritual union with the Lamb of God. They repeatedly celebrated the Passover. We repeatedly celebrate the Lord's Supper. So many images. Lamb, unleavened bread, consecration of the firstborn son. Well, all of these dots connect to declare that you belong to God only by union with his firstborn son. Our text teaches us that God discriminates 
the grounds for faithfulness, and then given for God's glory. First, God discriminates. We read it in verse 38 last week. A a mixed multitude of people went out of the land of Egypt with the Hebrews. And later we find out that some of the Egyptians left to follow Yahweh. This is profound. They said, I, I think my life would be better off going with those people because their God is true. And powerful. And then there were, of course, other slaves from various nations that were in Egypt at the time. And they said, This is our chance. Let's go. Then you get out into the wilderness. A natural question that they would have asked then is Who is going to partake of this meal that God's offering to us? We're not even descended from Abraham. And so at first, we would read this passage as, as something ethnic or, or racial. Look at verse 43 No foreigner shall eat of it. Verse 45, no foreigner or hired servant. But you can tell from the end of verse 48 that this is something more than race. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Uh, Philip Ryken said, it's not a matter of race, but of grace. These outsiders had not yet put their faith in the God of Israel, and thus they had no right to receive the atonement that he provided through the Passover lamb. It was not appropriate for them to receive the sign of salvation because they were not trusting in the blood of the Lamb. Circumcision was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. It was a sign of of God's promise to offer a relationship. And the only right response to a God who offers relationship is to embrace that relationship from the depths of your heart by faith, to, to grab hold of it and to enjoy the implications of what it means to be in God's family. I think you already understand this intuitively. Here's what I mean. Uh, If I had offered an engagement ring to Susan Granger a hundred times, we would still not be married today unless at some point she said, yes. Yes, I will marry you. Yes, I will take this ring. The giving of the ring is, is my stating of offering this relationship to Susan. Her willingness to wear it is her declaring, okay, I'm willing to be a part of this relationship. Some of you are still questioning her wisdom. But this is why in the Old Testament, circumcision of non-Hebrews is such a big deal to the Lord. It's a male's way of of joining with the nation of Israel to say, yes, I want to be in the family of God. Yes, as for me and my family, we want to also serve the Lord. And so the foreigner is making a a decision. I want to be included in what is an exclusive relationship. It's not a feast set for the whole world under some vague idea of common grace. It's a feast set specifically and only for those who by grace are God's children. You might think of it as a wedding reception. But only those who desire to wed themselves to Yahweh by faith are invited to the feast. Here's a celebration for for all those who who treasure what it means to be one of God's own people, for all those who will willingly adorn the family sign. But the offer is wide open. We won't take the time to to point out all the differing types of people that are mentioned in the text. You got instructions for everybody from the guy who happens to be walking through Israel at the time of the Passover to 
a person who comes to stay for a little while to conduct business, to, to people who are raised in your house, born under all these promises, but they don't have any ethnicity connected to your family? main thing I want you to notice in this text is that God's discrimination is marked by equity, equality, and love. Look at verse 49. His exclusivity is coupled with this warm welcome. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, the same rule applies to both. And the law is this. The males should be circumcised. So, In the Old Testament, circumcision is God's way of of drawing a line around those who belong to him. Inside the covenant community, there there are feasts and celebrations and worship and remembrance and sacrifices, and they're all inviting the person to, to understand and enjoy the blessings of what it means to be in relationship with Yahweh. To invite that person to to grow in faith and to trust the Lord more, to help you look to him. And believe that he is faithful to those promises that he's made. Oh, yes, it is true that not everyone who was circumcised in Old Testament Israel truly embraced the meaning of this relationship. But that didn't make the promises null or void. In the New Testament, baptism is the sign that replaces circumcision as God's way of marking out his people. It's an offer of relationship to you and to your children and to your children's children. So when an adult believer comes and he is baptized, it's a testimony not of I have decided to follow Jesus, but God has made extraordinary promises to me. I'm grabbing hold of this offer of grace. An adult believer's baptism is really their personal testimony of embracing that relationship. But an infant baptism is a parent's embracing the promises that God is the one who will cleanse my children from their sins. Those children still need to grow to embrace the implications of those promises. But here's the beauty of this new covenant sign. It's not bloody. It can be given to both genders. And the water more beautifully symbolizes the cleansing and purity than blood does. But just as that little boy circumcised on the eighth day had to grow to embrace the promises that are taught in his family, so do baptized infants. No, their baptism is not a profession of their own faith, it's a picture that declares that God is the one who does the cleansing. And and it's a summons in a sense. Grab hold of this offer of cleansing that God's made. Only those who were marked out in God's family were allowed to eat the family meal. And the same is true in the New Testament. Like the Passover, the Lord's Supper is an exclusive family meal. Sometimes this drives people, Southern Christians, crazy. It drives them crazy. As if it's rude to tell them that only those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, those who have embraced the relationship and and the symbolism of baptism may come. Well, it's not rude. It's the definitive nature of, of love. I'll give you a quick story to illustrate. A boy down the street recently had his fifth birthday 
Little Walker decided that he wanted to celebrate with just his family. He asked his mom if, if they could have spaghetti and cake and ice cream. Well, I caught wind of the party. And so being one who likes parties and spaghetti and cake and ice cream, I made sure to be sitting at the table when the family came home for Walker's party. I had a, a knife and a fork in the hand. No, I wasn't there to celebrate Walker. I don't really even know the kid. I just like parties. I just don't like being left out. Here's where I need your help. Am I wrong to be offended? I mean, his dad, sweet guy, called me over. He said, listen, this is a family meal. You're not even here to celebrate my son. It's offensive to me that you don't know or love my son, but you just wanted to be here for cake and ice cream. If you just woke up from a nap, you're trying to figure out why the guy up front is so dense and so rude. Well, the illustration is, of course, fictitious, which explains why I'm not in prison today. Should I be offended? No. It takes away from the celebration of the sun for me to take the feast lightly. Family meals are for family. Those who love and adore the object of celebration. The Lord's Supper is a family meal for those who love the object of the celebration. So the old Scottish Presbyterian term that's used is fencing the table. When you hear the pastor explain before the Lord's Supper that this is a meal just for those who are baptized members in good standing of a church, he's actually summarizing what the Bible teaches about the who question. Who may partake? Those who publicly professed faith in Christ. And why does your church spend some time on that? Because the Bible says at some level each person must be able to discern the Lamb of God that's, that's slain to take away the sins of God's people. 1 Corinthians 11 that was read earlier. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then... And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Fencing the table is not rude. It's, it's in fact the most gracious thing that the church could do for God's people. There's an exclusivity to the Lord's table. It's not Presbyterian. But it's for those who love Christ and publicly profess faith in Christ. Therefore, it's wide open to anybody who trusts in the Lord Jesus as Savior. God offers grace to anyone, but only those who love his Son are welcome to the feast. God discriminates in a most beautiful way. You belong to God only by union with his firstborn Son. Secondly, let's look at the grounds for faithfulness. In our study two weeks back, we invested some time understanding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was to take place between the night of the 14th and 15th day of the month. You remember, God reordered their entire calendar. The whole of their lives was to start with God's redemption. 
And then the next seven days from 14 to 21, they were to eat no leaven. And if you miss that sermon, you might think that God hates those little yeast packets that you get from Kroger, or he hates fluffy bread. That's not what's going on. Leaven, and they understood this, represents the sin and evil of the ways that they existed in and loved in the past while in Egypt. God's saying, you trusted me and my promise to accept that Passover lamb, and I accepted your faith, and then I delivered you out from under Pharaoh, and now, redeemed by God, the feast of unleavened bread means this, I want you, having been saved, to respond to my salvation by actively getting rid of the sin and the evil of your past. The ground of your faithfulness to me, says God, is my faithfulness to you. The reason God called them to repeat the feast every year is twofold. Number one, so that they would never forget. And number two, so that they would tell the next generation. Notice the repeated phrase, by a strong hand the Lord brought you out. It's in verse 3 and it comes two other times. Therefore, here's the feast of unleavened bread. Keep that. And then when you get to the promised land and your son says, hey, dad, why do we keep this feast? Look at verse 8. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So the strong hand of the Lord was meant to be remembered and talked about in the family. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the years with people who have spoke of their upbringing in one of two ways. Some have said something like this. I think my parents were Christians. Uh, they really didn't talk about it. I don't know if they were completely comfortable and didn't know what to say. Sometimes a person in that category will, will also add, you know, I, I don't know. We, we went to church. I went to, to Sunday school, but we never really talked about it. I don't know why. The other category that I sometimes hear, it's a really different story. I grew up in a Christian home, and I remember my parents praying and, and talking about the Lord. I really got a sense that my parents also needed Christ. It wasn't just for disobedient children. We read the Bible together. We would discuss the things that we read. And I, I really can't remember a time that I didn't know that I, I wanted to embrace Jesus as my own Savior. Exodus 13 says that's the way that parents are to discuss salvation. To explain the saving acts like it's a normal part of things that we talk about in the home. Every year, dad would go and select a, a lamb. Hey, son, do you know why we do this each year? It's because of what the Lord did for me. I was so wicked. I was as, as, as worthy of judgment as every other idol worshiper in Egypt. And on that night, God just told us to sprinkle the blood. He said, stay inside. It was the most terrifying night of my life. But God looked at the blood of a four-legged lamb and he counted that as sufficient sacrifice. He passed over my house. 
And we all lived. And then he picked us up and he carried us out of slavery. That's the kind of experiential, personal testimony that was meant to accompany the Passover meal. Moms and, moms and dads, you don't celebrate the Passover meal anymore. But you do have a deliverance from sin through Christ that is far greater. Do you talk about this in your home? Make it a normal part of your everyday life? The talking was actually meant to help the remembering. We'd like to, but our family's sort of busy. I mean, life's crazy. I can't really even get the kids to sit still. Parents, you're the only one that's actually going to teach your children about Christ. Or you'll teach them to forget Christ. And if you are truly busier with your gas stove and your dishwasher and your washing machine than two million ex-slaves who are walking across a desert with kneading bowls attached to their backs, you might need to reorder some things in order to open up the space to teach your children about Christ. Perhaps you need to remember the gospel as much or more than your kids do. It's deceptively easy to enslave yourself and your children by creating ridiculous expenses and then chasing your tail to try to find the money to pay for it. It's deceptively enslaving and ridiculous to put your children in activities that no four-year-old needs to be involved in and all the while while you provide for them things that your parents never could give you financially or experientially or athletically or academically, you are teaching them to chase something other than Christ. Because that's what you're doing. And when you run your legs off trying to provide, you're telling them to forget Christ. In fact, you're telling them, you're the center of the universe, little one. God's strong hand is worthy of remembrance. It is worthy of talking about. So parents, make sure that you create an environment where that happens. College students, who you marry matters. Am I marrying somebody who's going to help me create an environment? where I can remember and talk about it and pass it on to the next generation? Because you see, that's how you teach your children and your grandchildren the grounds for faithfulness. Point them to Christ. You belong to God only by union with his firstborn son. God discriminates. These are the grounds for faithfulness. We're going to close with given for God's glory. Uh, I've said this phrase a lot during the sermon series. For every physical picture, there's an underlying spiritual reality. Another way to say that is the book of Exodus teaches theology. It teaches God's people. God judges sin. That's taught through a series of plagues. It teaches the doctrine of election. God chose the Hebrew people as his people out of all the face of the earth. Here's a big term, substitutionary atonement. God's people were, slay, were saved by the blood of a lamb that was offered in their place. Propitiation. Another big word, God's lamb that's offered, that blood was meant to turn away the wrath of God. 
they learned the communion of saints. Don't take the meal outside the home. Don't break the lamb up. Bring people into your house. It's for your family. The feast of unleavened bread teaches sanctification. Once God saves his people, he calls them to throw off the sins of their past. So what's the big deal with firstborn sons? Through this picture, the Lord teaches us the doctrine of redemption. Look at verse 13 too, chapter 13 too. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And so at the start of the Exodus, if you remember, God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, look, I'll kill your firstborn son. It made perfect sense after the 10th plague. The Egyptians did not miss the picture. They couldn't get the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt fast enough. So what they understood was that the taking of the firstborn is is a signal. We're all under judgment, not just the firstborn. We're all under a curse. You see, the firstborn concept is is a representative concept. Think about the team captain who walks out on a field to represent everybody else who's on the sidelines. Take a look at verse 13. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So the firstborn, this representative concept is this. Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything is given to God's glory, both man and beast. Your tithe is the exact same thing, which is why in the Old Testament it is said that the first fruits belong to the Lord. Does that mean just the first? It means everything belongs to the Lord, but God has woven into his law a way for you to see that that if the first belongs, then all of it belongs. A donkey is a pack animal. God considers it too common to be used for a sacrifice. It still belongs to God. And so, when that donkey is given to you by God in your flock, I mean, in your herd, you can either break its neck, which is a symbolic way of saying, I'm giving this back to you, Lord, or you can redeem it. You can buy that donkey back with a payment price. And the lamb is the substitute in its place. You redeem the cost of the donkey at the cost of a lamb. The illustration is not written down for the sake of lambs and donkeys. It's for people. To consecrate the firstborn is to say, this one represents the whole family. All of you belong to me. God made sure that he had a picture in their culture that would constantly teach them this very same lesson. The high cost to redeem you from slavery was paid in judgment upon the firstborn. You can make of this whatever you will. The people are redeemed in the exact same way that donkeys are. Perhaps because we are also stubborn and unclean. People laughed in the first service. They thought that was funny. Thank you. Appreciate the courtesy. A lamb for a life. So, if the Zellners lived under the Old Testament law, 
God had given to Eric and Susan a daughter, and her name was Olivia, and we loved her, and we cherished her. And then God gave us another daughter, and her name was Emma Francis, and we loved her, and we cherished her. And then later, God gave us a son, and his name was Cord, and we love him, and we cherish him. But when he's born, I go to get a lamb out of the flock, and I sacrifice this lamb not just to redeem cord, but to remind us that a lamb must be slain to redeem all of God's people. Finally, God gives us a fourth child, another daughter, and her name is Lucy, and we love her and we cherish her. The cost of the redemption of this family has already been paid by that lamb that was sacrificed at the birth of the son. And because Lucy wasn't around to see the birth of cord. God wove into his law a way that she would witness the sacrifice of the lamb to pay for the redemption of the family because it would happen again and again in the flocks and the herds. A firstborn represents everybody. And God painted this picture on the canvas that is the most precious to a father and a mother. Your children. Your precious children They don't belong to you. They belong to God. The illustration? Your family is redeemed from sin at the cost of a lamb. You are saved through your connection with that firstborn son. Sound familiar? In the New Testament, God brings together the lamb and the son. In Christ. Though God's still teaching the doctrine of redemption, your own life is to be redeemed by the high cost of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that Lamb is none other than the firstborn Son of God. Colossians 1.15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. But he also conquers death through resurrection, which is why Revelation 1 verse 5 declares that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Friends, you belong to God by union with his son, which is infinitely better than attempting to belong to God by working your way by some silly good works. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the beauty of your word, and we pray that you would richly bind it to the hearts of your people. Uh, We desire to know you in the sacrament that we will partake of in a moment, just as you have revealed yourself in the beauty of this word written. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.